0: Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us today as we look at the practice of worship. Lord, would You guide our hearts and our minds uh, to better understand ourselves as we focus on understanding you. Lord, if you draw us into your presence, may this, in fact, be an opportunity for us to encounter you, to worship you, to fall to our knees in response of your goodness and of your glory. Lord, that as Drew preached this morning, Lord, that even if that's a, a reaction that comes from fear of being close to you and what that might mean for us, Lord, that you might tap us on the shoulder and say, get up and have no fear. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, it looks like we've gathered into into groups, so that's good. Um, We're learning. That's fantastic. Um, So the opening question today, what I'd like for you to talk about around the table, um, I'm going to try, I don't know if I can phrase it as a question off the top of my head, but the conversation starter for today is this. Think back to a a moment of incredible worship that you've had, uh, whatever, wherever, whatever the circumstances were. Um, think back to, to, to that moment that you've had where you just your heart was just singing. I mean, you, just something was happening. Maybe for me, I'll, I'll just share a story to give you, prime the pump, if you will. Uh, for me, uh, being a Charleston guy, I love being on the water. And I remember there's this one particularly vivid uh, memory I have. We were sailing uh, in the Charleston Harbor, and I was surrounded by uh, close friends and family. And it was just one of those perfect days. Do you know what I mean? Like The weather was just absolutely Perfect. The wind was just at the right angle and the sun was beating down. And I just remember thinking like this, this is heavenly, this moment that I'm in right now. So uh, for me, funny, the priest, right? I'm not talking about actual church worship, but it was a moment of true worship for me was actually being out there in the midst of the Lord's creation and, and just being overwhelmed by His splendor and His beauty and His, his goodness. Maybe you have a story like that. Maybe it, it comes from a, a church camp or something like that, or maybe it comes from being in worship uh, in a place like this, like St. John's. But just think back to a moment of worship and, and share that around the table. I would also encourage you, if you could, just lead with your name. Don't, don't assume that everybody knows everybody else around the table. So it's a good way to get to know each other as well. All right, there you go. There's your prong. If I could gather everybody's attention back up to the front, and if you didn't get a chance to go, you are first on the list to go here towards the end uh, as we conclude with our last question here at the end. But um, Sometimes we can think of spiritual disciplines, and I would say worship in particular. Sometimes we, we have this idea, um, have you ever heard of the idea of something that is it's a, a solution in search of a problem? Right. So so it's it's a solution to something, but we don't know what the what what the problem is that it is solving. And, And so it kind of doesn't it loses its purpose. It doesn't find its place. Sometimes the way that we approach worship is kind of like that. Right, you say I I, I trust in the Lord. I believe in the Lord. Um, I I try to do the best I can day in and day out. And I'm also really busy. I've got things going on. How important is it really that that I gather together and do these things and sort of how you know? Oftentimes when I go, my mind's racing the entire time I'm there. I'm only half paying attention. If the preacher was any good, maybe I'd be more involved. You know. Our minds just go to these different places, and, and sometimes we, 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 worship is, is a solution to a problem that we don't recognize that we have, and so it becomes a lower priority for us. It doesn't become something that we make a habit, um, no matter what, that we turn into that type of discipline that we're talking about. So for us to understand what worship is, the first thing that I'd like for us to do is to understand how it is the solution to a real problem that we have. Right to understand why it is good for us and why it is necessary for our spiritual well-being as much well-being as much as breathing is to our physical well-being. So let me start with just uh, an analogy. Let's just say that I really, really like eating Burger King Whoppers. They're so good, charbroiled, right? Smoke coming up from Burger King. Let's just say I, I love. Those Whoppers. Now, I know they're bad for me, right? I know that every Whopper that I eat can potentially kill me if they make up a big enough portion of my diet, right? I know that that is true. I understand that intellectually. Like, but when I'm hungry, I see that smoke going up, right? I know there's a Whopper that's just waiting right there for me. Does it actually matter? In that moment, what I know to be true, that, that that whopper is not actually good for me. When I'm hungry and it's right there, does it matter that I know that I shouldn't eat it? The answer is not necessarily, right? Not necessarily. Because there's another force that's at work within me. And my guess is it's probably uh, finds it, uh, you find at times it's at work within you as well. There's this force of desire, longing, right? It's quite possible. You might even say that it is likely that my longing in that moment might overrule my logic, my reasoning, my understanding, my intellect. It goes like this. Whoppers can kill me, but this whopper probably won't, right? And I'm hungry. And besides, isn't dying of starvation even worse? Right? So let me eat. And so what happens? We rationalize our desires. We give reason to what we want all along. To what we're longing for. What we, what we desire. Alright, now here's how this connects Uh, with worship. This is sort of where we're going to be going this morning, right? This, This action, whether or not we fully understand how, it actually affects the something that we are, that makes us as people, right? If you repeat this action of eating these whoppers, long enough whether or not I know what's actually happening what's going to happen if it makes up a big enough part of my diet and all I'm doing is eating Whoppers well you're going to tell aren't you you're going to notice because physically my body is going to react I'm going to change so there's this a physical reaction to this action that I'm taking whether or not I put the two together or not it's actually taking place but there's also an internal change as well Right? The more I, I rationalize this thought, this action, the more accustomed to it I become. And the more of a habit it turns into. Right? The more ingrained it becomes in me. To the point where I just see the smoke and I get hungry. Right. We have examples of this in our own lives. The way these habits sort of form. The more you do it, the more it weakens your will to not do it. And again this happens regardless if we understand what's taking place or not the way these forces are, are shaping who we are and the being that we are Now some of you could say you could say that our desires only overrule our understanding when we un- when our understanding is insufficient Right? if I truly, truly knew how bad Whoppers were for me, if I, if I truly knew that the act of caving to my desires, weakening my will, changing who I am as a person, well, then I would be able to recognize what I'm doing when I, when I rationalize eating a Whopper, right? When, I, when I'm searching for that last Whopper that finally will kill me because that's actually what I'm doing, right? If that was the case, then my understanding would be sufficient to overcome my desire. And that is true when we are thinking rationally. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We're not always rational creatures, are we? We actually are designed to make most of our decisions without even thinking about it. right? I mentioned breathing earlier. Breathing is a, a great example Imagine if you had to rationally decide every time you wanted to take a breath. Imagine the strain that would put your mind through. You're probably thinking about it right now, and breathing just got a lot harder, right? Because you have to think about it. Right? We are designed, we are created to form habits. We are created, we were made so that our brains could actually put some things on autopilot so that we could focus on what's most important, what's, what's in front of us, the decisions that actually need rational input. But the problem is, and this is where we're getting to with worship, the problem is that if we were to take an honest look at ourselves, some of the things that get put on that habitual autopilot are not always good for us, and they're not always as good for us as breathing. Breathing. Right? We take an honest look at ourselves and we see that we aren't just thinking things and we aren't just these animalistic things acting on instincts, but that we are rational things that don't always act rationally. That's probably the, the best description of, of who we are walking through the world today. So that's part of the problem. The second part of the problem is this. Whether motivated by logic or by longing, we also have to acknowledge that our actions blow back on our identity. Right? What we do actually affects who we are. Our being is not static. Right? Our identity is constantly changing. And the decisions that we make affect our identity and affect that change. It's constantly being shaped by the, the actions that result from our logic or from our longings. Uh, James K. A. Smith, he wrote a wonderful book called You Are What You Love. I highly recommend it. I left it in my office, but imagine it's right here and I'm showing it to you. You are what you love. It's a great book. And, and, and the premise of the book is this. You are what you love, but you might not love what you think. And he talks about this idea of, of our habits and how our habits show us our heart's desire, what we truly long for. He says this in in sort of a short synopsis of the book. He was describing it. He says, One of the remarkable things about Christian worship is that it is completely honest about that reality that we are rational creatures who are not always rational. Every week, the people of God are invited into the story of God in Christ. And one of the chapters of that story is a moment in which Christians confess the gap between what they know they ought to love... And what they actually love. What they've actually been doing. Worship then, he says, is the gift that the Holy Spirit gives us as a way to retrain our loves and our longings. He says, you are what you love. You might not love what you think. But the Spirit of God is inviting you into heart-shaping practices that will reorient you to God's kingdom. How beautiful is that? How wonderful is that I'm reminded of one of my uh, favorite quotes, um, and it's by the author of The Little Prince, and his name is French, and so I'm not even going to try to say it. Um, but the quote goes like this: If you want to teach a man uh, to, to um, if you want to teach a man to sail, don't give him some wood and some instructions and some tools. I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it written down exactly in front of me, right? If you want to teach a man to sail, no, don't give him a bunch of wood and instructions and nails. But teach him to long for the endlessness of the sea. Right? Teach him to long for what the sea is and for how beautiful it is. And he will in, have built up inside of him the desire to be a part of it. To become a sailor, to get out and to build a ship and to go. And so that is what uh, James Smith is, is getting at. That God gives us this opportunity to retrain our loves through the practice of worship. What's interesting is that um, Martin Luther, uh, when he uh, uh, wrote his 95 theses, he actually wrote them in Latin. And he distributed them amongst the faculty of the college that he was working in. Uh, He he didn't intend for them to become the the phenomenon that they were. But an unknown uh, translator translated them into German and then posted them on uh, the door of uh, Wittenberg, uh, the church in Wittenberg. And this is the first of his theses which caused, sparked the whole Reformation. The first is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. What he's getting at is this idea of worship, that we live our lives in a way that we are constantly reorienting from the self to God himself. Right from from being focused on us to being focused on God, and so this idea of repentance, a lot of times we think of it as like um, you know grovelling, being down on your knees and asking for forgiveness, but it's not just a turning away from sin. Repentance is a turning towards God, and so this idea of worship is built in us, and these practices of worship help us as we turn towards God as we live these lives of worship. So worship, then, it can be summed up like this. Worship is something we do in response to what God has revealed about himself that shapes our identity regardless of how much or how little we understand about it. Our worship is something we do in response to what God has revealed about himself that shapes our identity regardless of how much we understand so to understand worship, then, it's, it's best to, to see both aspects of it, what we do and what it does to us. Right? Because worship is more than just our offering to God, but it is also his offering to us, to mold us into his own, into who he wants us to be. So worship is something we do to allow God to do something to us, right? to allow him to shape our hearts, to shape our minds by enacting his story of redemption, so it might help us if we reframe uh, in our minds our approach to worship in light of this. Right, a lot of times the focus of worship is not uh, when we when we come in, we we're carrying all this baggage and we're, we're carrying all the stuff from the week and everything else is just racing through our minds, and so we we come into worship with this idea of like, okay, let's let's do what we need to do, let's let's say the prayers and and, and let's sing the songs and let's hope that doing them causes me to emotionally, uh, spiritually get into a a different rhythm or a a different place. And our focus is on the practices of worship. But I think that there's a a way to look at this that might provide us a better entrance into true worship. And that is that the practices of worship allow us to give ourselves to God, right? Right? So the focus of our worship is not on the practices of worship, singing, reading, praying, listening, eating, drinking. It's on the giving of self to God through these practices, not on partaking in certain things to try to achieve a certain result. The focus of worship is on the giving of self through these things. What we're doing is we're saying, Lord, here I am. Have your way. I am yours. I'm here to worship you. I'm here to meet you. And you promised that you would meet us in these ways. And so I trust that you will. Let me give another example that doesn't involve whoppers. uh, Maybe of a a positive way that this this happens. How our our longings of our heart sort of shape our our worship. All right, let's say that I love playing baseball. I'm Ford's soccer coach currently, so this is just make-believe. But let's say I love playing baseball. Right now, I'm very much so aware of the fact that I have none of the physical attributes that are necessary to play baseball at any level, much less a high level, right? I never have. I know that to be true. And yet, I love playing baseball. I love it. I love it. And I try to play whenever I can. So how does that action shape my identity? How does it shape who I am? Well... I become a better baseball player, right? The more I play, the better I am. But my focus isn't on becoming a better baseball player. My focus is on living that opportunity that I have to play in uh, that game, right? My heart's desire, my, my longing to participate in the longing. And as a result of that, I get better at playing. I'm no longer the the guy who gets picked last in the local baseball league. I might be the guy who gets picked next to last, but I'm not the guy who gets picked last, right? My identity has changed. I'm someone else. And so when it comes to worship, here's a question as we come to our conclusion. How do we make sure that we're engaging this sort of uh, desire, these sort of longings? How do we make sure that we're playing baseball and not eating Whoppers? How do we know that we are engaging right understanding or right desires in our acts of worship? Well, I want to give you two sort of litmus tests, if you will. Uh, Just some practical things that you can keep in mind uh, as you go about your days and as you make your your choices and your decisions and different things. Because there are two things that will help us shape worship of a Christian God specifically and uniquely. Uh, So worship is something we do in response Specifically to what God has revealed about Himself. Uh, J.I. Packer says the basis of worship is the covenant relationship where God has bound Himself to those whom He has saved and claimed. And so the foundation of our worship is this revelation of who God is that He loves us enough uh, to make us His own, and that He will do what He can, which is to, to send His Son and, and to die in our stead. So that we could know Him. And so our worship is in response to this revelation of who God is. And so here's the first uh, litmus test for authentic and true worship. Ask yourself this question as you go about your days. Is what I'm doing in response to my understanding or my desire of who God has revealed Himself to be? Think about your week and think about the different things that you do. And ask yourself that question is what I'm doing in response to my understanding or my desire of who God has revealed himself to be. Because God will use that. He will use that to guide you into true worship of him. He will use that to show you uh, where you are or aren't making um, that choice and how to do it better next time. All right, now, the other thing that we have as we wrap up here, the other sort of litmus test we have is throughout scripture, God gives us a pattern for worship um, that is very helpful for us. Uh, in revealing himself to us, he had the mercy of revealing, uh, revealing this, this pattern. And so for Israel, that includes uh, Sabbath, it includes some national feasts, it includes the Day of Atonement and this regular sacrificial system. Uh, and if I have the time, we could guide us through all of those. But under the New Covenant, let's jump to the chase there. We see that in Jesus, we have the priesthood and the sacrifice and the intercession that, that supersedes all that God did through the Mosaic law. Uh, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper that replace circumcision and Passover. And we have uh, the Sabbath, which is renewed by being not just uh, good for doing nothing, but good for doing good. And so we have this pattern that is formed. And what's neat about what we do here in an Anglican church is we try to pattern our worship off of what the early church did when they were doing it based off of um, the scriptures that they had. And what's unique about what Martin Luther, or excuse me, well, um, not Martin Luther, he's Lutheran, um, what um, Thomas Cramner did, the writer of the prayer book. Um, What was unique about what he did is he said uh, the prayer book needs to be written in the vernacular of the people because they need to understand it. And some people say the prayer book is simply uh, scripture organized for worship because that was his entire goal. He said he believed that reading of of the word alone was enough to cause change in somebody's heart. And so that's all he wanted to do was to get the scriptures in front of people. And so that, you'll notice, is the backbone of our prayer book. And so the way that we do worship is based off of the earliest church's practices. That's based off of uh, the Israel uh, practices as well that God revealed to them, the patterns and the rhythms that they had as well. So let me end with a quote from James Smith, and then we'll get to our concluding question. He says this, This is how worship works. Christian formation is the conversion of the imagination, which is affected by the Spirit, who recruits our most fundamental desires by kind of narrative enchantment, by inviting us into a story that seeps into our bones and becomes the orienting background of our being in the world. He says our incarnating God continues to meet us where we are as imaginative creatures of habit. That's a beautiful description of what worship is. And it means that it's not on us to feel the right way when we come to worship. Because what we are invited into is God's presence. That he will take us, no matter where we are, whether we're feeling it or not, whether we're longing for it or not, whether we understand it or not. And he will do a work within us um, to bring us closer to him. That's his promise. And so that's why we engage in worship. All right. Here is the question for the table. Uh, Drew started last week with the question of of what do you want in your relationship from God? I'd like to end this week with this question. What is it about God that you love and how does that lead you into worship? So what do you love about God and how does that lead you into worship? All right. Thank you very much. Y'all can talk around your tables. And if I disappear, it's because we've got one more service I've got to run over to. Thank you.